thee who thou art, the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed, and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. This morning we're going to be looking at the subject of the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, the privilege that it is just to be here together this morning. God, I pray that as we're here, God, we are ready to receive your word. But I pray that as we're here, Lord, it would speak to us. Lord, as a two-edged sword, it would pierce our hearts where needed. God, if, our, if we're hard or callous this morning, it would, as you tell us in the Old Testament, it would be like that hammer that shattereth the rock in pieces. Lord, I pray that we'd allow your word to speak to us, to move in us. God, where we can make application where necessary to be the Christians that you'd have us to be. Yes, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. After escaping martyrdom there in Nazareth, Jesus literally went down to Capernaum. Nazareth was perched in a hollow in a, in a hilly uh, area there southwest of the Sea of Galilee, a little bit over 1,300 feet elevation was the city of Nazareth. And as Jesus went down the hill, he went there 686 feet below sea level as he arrived to Capernaum. Just two miles from where the Jordan River meets the Sea of Galilee, and that landscape was much different, obviously, in Capernaum than it would have been in Nazareth. You know, Nazareth may have been Jesus' hometown, but now he moves to Capernaum, and, he, and this pretty much ends up being his base of operations there for the rest of his ministry uh, to the people. And when Jesus arrived at Capernaum, he immediately went to the synagogue. What did we learn about Jesus last week? He went from place to place, city to city, and wherever he went, he would find a synagogue often, and he would teach. He made a habit out of it. And as Jesus was here preaching to the people of Capernaum, his preaching made a difference. It had a great impact, as we're going to see. What did it consist of? Well, we look here in verse 32, and it says, They were astonished at his, what? Doctrine. For his word was with power. The first thing we see in the preaching of Jesus is that it was, it, had, it was full of doctrine. The doctrine that we have in the word of God is true. Uh, the definition for doctrine for you this morning would be a, a belief or a set of beliefs. And as we examine what went on in the synagogues of those days, we could go back in history and, just, and read about what went on, what was taught. And the scribes, they would really major on the trivial things. They would elevate the traditions of men above the word of God and they were worried more about the traditions and worried more about what people thought, meaning maybe speaking of tithing their mint leaves or how far a man could walk on the Sabbath and they spent much of their time on those kind of things. But Jesus, as he came and as he preached, he preached serious matters that were life and death. He preached heaven and hell. He preached life, death, and eternity. His words had eternal value. In those days as well, the scribes would also teach the words of other scribes. And they loved really to show how smart they were, and as they would share the thoughts of other scribes, they really shared things that really had no level of true importance. But Jesus, as he taught, as we can see, and we've only seen just a glimpse of it to this point, he taught systematically. He had the word of God, and he would teach, he would read the word of God, then he would apply it and explain it. The scribes were dry in their teaching. They, they really, for the most part, spoke of things that many 
really did not care about and, and also because they couldn't understand often what they were teaching, what they were saying. They were just on a mission to, to elevate themselves above other, other people in this time and place. But Jesus used illustrations. He, de- he developed clear picture for the people to excite interest in his teachings. You know, the scribes, for the most part, they didn't care about the people to whom they were preaching. And they used people for their own advantage and profit. We can look in Mark chapter 12 and find evidence of that. And Their mission was to make money, to make good of themselves, to lift themselves up, to, to be wealthy on the people's behalf. But what did Jesus do? He loved the world. He came for the world. He cared about every person that he, that he spoke to. and He pointed them to the love of his Father. The theme verse of Luke is the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his mission. That was his goal in his teaching, in his preaching, in his journeying that he made. When the scribes taught, nothing of eternal value took place. It was shallow. It did not bring life change in the people who heard it. But when Jesus taught, there was doctrine and the word of God was used and declared. And when he spoke, hearts were pierced, souls came to him, and lives were altered. We have a command in the word of God. Paul wrote to Timothy, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and what? Doctrine. You know, I, I could get up here this morning and I could, I could write down some principles that I've heard some very wise men that might be able to help us a little bit. I could get up here and I could share what, what many authors in the world have written, some words of wisdom, and I could maybe try to come up with some things on my own. I wouldn't come up, come up with too many things on my own, of my own wisdom. But none of it would ever hold a candle to what we have in the Bible this morning. His preaching was clear. Jesus' preaching was convicting. You know, he didn't just preach about God's word. He preached God's word. That's what we're committed to do for you here at the church. And the Bible teaches us everything we need in this life. As we look in the word of God, we will find what the Bible says a person must do to be saved. It's by grace through faith, not of ourselves. As we continue on in the Bible, we can learn what it is to be the parent that God would have us to be. We can learn what it means to be an obedient child and to be a, a, a son or a daughter that honors his, his parents. We can look at what the Bible says a godly marriage is going to look like. We can look at what the Christian life means to look like. We can find in the Bible how to overcome temptation, how to make it through the trials. We can continue on in the Word of God and just understand what is faith, what is grace, what is mercy. Who is God? What is biblical baptism? Who is our enemy? What is my job as a Christian? We look in the word of God and all the answers are found there on those questions. He's given us his word. The truth is important. You know, Jesus' teaching and preaching didn't just consist of doctrine, but it also consisted of power. He said he he taught with this authority. There was power in the words that he was saying. The book of Matthew references this as well. He taught them as one having authority. And then it says, a little blow to them, but not as the scribes. (laughs) There was power behind the preaching. You know, the only reason I can stand up here this morning with any confidence is not because I have important things to say to you today. But God's word needs to be heard. And I'm not not up here this morning or any preacher that's going to stand in this pulpit is not in it in their own authority. They are here on behalf of God preaching his words to his people. You know, Jesus' preaching made a difference. 
But as we look here, we see his preaching, but then we also see the opposition of Jesus. We look here in verse 33, it says, And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. We're going to find here in Luke the first recorded miracle from Jesus in this gospel. And it involves a demon. You know, God's word commands us to have discernment in regards to Satan and his demons. Book of 1 John chapter 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11 says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We need to live aware of the devil. We need to live with an awareness of, uh, of the devices he may use and the temptations he may bring or the ways he may try to come and to trick, to trick society, to trick our children, to, to fool us. He's the great deceiver. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here and make a habit out of preaching uh, the news every week and things that we see. I'm not, not going to do that. But as we're here in this text at this time, and just thinking one week back, I think many of us can think of what happened with the Grammys on Sunday night. It was all over the place. And I'm thankful that it brought outrage in what was happening. A, a singer by the name of Sam Smith performed a song called Unholy. There was a lot of criticism over that, as it should have been. People say it's just an artistic expression. It's, it's, it's art. No, it was, it was Satan worship. And they are doing everything they can to just make things seem like entertainment or okay or to make things light. But I'm telling you, the devil was all over that place that night. It was wickedness. And we need to protect our own hearts. We need to protect the hearts of our young people from those things and explain to them what is wrong there. That's just one example. But we can look all over society and see how the devil has infiltrated his way into so many avenues. We need to stay as far away from it as we can. There was a book on the religious beliefs of America. A man by the name of George Barna wrote these and had many surveys that were in this that he took. And then he wrote about the answers to those surveys. And in chapter 4, he started writing questions and he would ask for answers from these certain people. Do you, how much do you agree with this statement? And in chapter 4, this was a, a statement he made asking for a level of agreement. And he said, the devil or Satan is not a living being but a symbol of evil. And then he said, to certain people who are born again, that's all he asked, people that were professing Christians, he says, do you agree strongly? Do you agree somewhat? Disagree somewhat or disagree strongly with that statement? In case you didn't know, Christians should strongly disagree with that statement. State, Satan is a true being. He was an angel cast out from God. He is the prince and power of this air. He walketh about. And this born-again population that he questioned replied with 32% agreeing strongly that Satan was not a living being but a symbol of evil. 11% agreed somewhat. 5% did not know. 48% of professing Christians that were asked did not believe, did not agree, did think that the devil was a living being. A few chapters later, he asked another question. He said, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and others all pray to the same God, even though they use different names for that God. Do you agree? And of the population, the same ones that he asked the previous question, 
30% agreed strongly that they were all praying to the same God. 18% somewhat, 12% did not know, 60%. But what does the Bible tell us? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We can look later on in the New Testament where the Bible says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, that eliminates all others. And that's one reason as a church we need to preach what the Bible says without apology, understanding his word is true. His doctrine needs to be preached so men and women can be helped and strengthened in it. But what has Satan done? He's deceived mankind for thousands of years. 2 Corinthians 11 says, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. In that survey that was given, that's what happened to those people. And he's worked as, he's infiltrated his way into so many things. He wants to fool as many as he can. He's, he's worked to normalize demonic activity to the people of the world. But the Bible tells us neither give place to the devil. Movies, music, books. Little by little he's crept in. What was that verse just a few moments ago? Be not ignorant of his devices. He's real, and he is seeking to devour any he can, so we must be alert. But as powerful as he is, he is not equal to God. So we look here in verse 33, and we see this encounter of the demon. This demon showed up in the synagogue. Jesus was preaching here at this moment. He had read the scriptures, no doubt, and he was preaching and teaching, and as he always did. And we don't know exactly what he was preaching, but we looked last week just what he did in Nazareth. And, I, I, you know, maybe he was preaching that same message from Isaiah. Saying, I have come to bring good news to the poor. I, I have come to bring sight to the blind. I have come to bring freedom to the captives. And maybe he continued that message. And as he was preaching, out of nowhere, a man stood up, demon-possessed, and said, let us alone. Could you imagine how uh, that may have startled a few people? <laughs> But he was opposing the ministry of Jesus. And he is going to continue to try to do that today. But let's look at some things about this demon. First, first thing we find out in this passage is that Satan knows the presence of Christ. He, he called him out right there. He said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, you've come to destroy us, right? I know thee who thou art. You know, Satan knows the presence of Christ. There are people all over society, you could go from place to place in the country that we live in and find philosophers and professors and, and all kinds of unbelievers, people that may be professing atheists that will say that God does not exist, but the devil himself acknowledges who Jesus is. In the book of Acts, certain Jews were trying to cast out demons and the demons spoke back to those Jews. It says in Acts 19, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? James chapter 2, he says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. The devil's very aware of the presence of God. And it causes him to tremble. But not only is he aware of the presence of God, he continues to oppose the word of God. First words out of his mouth, as this message, whatever it was, was being preached, he cried, Let us alone. And he's fighting against the word and the message of God today. Without fail, he's going to do what he can to hinder the word from being given. 
to the believer and to the unbeliever. You know, a strategy, some strategies of Satan with the unbelievers, the first one we could find in 2 Corinthians 4, we're not going to go to these for time's sake, but he blinds the minds of the unsaved. In Matthew, it's described that he snatches away the good seed of the word. In Luke 11, he deceives the unbeliever with a false sense of security, thinking everything's okay, everything's going to work out. In 2 Timothy, he continues to lay snares, it says, for the unaware. In the book of 2 Corinthians, he masquerades as an angel of light. Do you see that today? Making himself seem like the loving, the only loving one, the only accepting light. Matthew 13, he will mix truth with error. He does it with believers as well. Satan will work and to cause the church or its believers to be in sin or to fall, to hurt any kind of witness they would ever be able to have. He'll persecute from the outside. He'll distract from the outside. He'll do, he'll do what he can inside the church to disturb the unity of it by creating discord or division. He will confuse people on the church or in churches through apostasy or heresy. All over the world today, he is using people dis, dis, disguised as preachers in places dis, disguised as churches to be so close to the truth, so close to the truth, but so far away from the true salvation those people need to receive. And as we spent time on Wednesday night, we are in a spiritual battle. Right now, we are in a spiritual battle. And Satan doesn't want this church, Satan doesn't want these people in this room today to reach the people of Midland or, or Odessa. He doesn't want us giving to missions. He doesn't want you to make an impact for God. He, does, he wants to pull away your children. He wants to keep your children from ever doing anything for the Lord. He wants to distract your family. He wants to stop this pastor. He wants to slow down the work of God. He doesn't want you to be in the Bible, to hear the Bible. He doesn't want it to be clearly taught or preached. So be aware and remember our God is greater. You know, we see the preaching of Jesus and we see the opposition of Jesus. And then we also see the power of Jesus. Look there at verse 35. And Jesus rebuked him saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. I would have loved to witness Jesus do this. You can imagine the, the distraction that came. And he's preaching truth. He is preaching his word. He's clearly getting out to everyone that was there to hear them. Possibly two to three hundred people there that day. And this man, demon-possessed, stands up in the back and begins to ask Jesus to stop and to distract and to scare people that were there. And Jesus said... What did he say? Hold thy peace and come out of him. So as he was preaching, the distraction comes, he looks, he says, stop it and leave. And immediately it stopped. He, 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 with his power and his authority, he said, cut it out and get out of here. And in this desperate rage, the demon threw the man down. As this man was possessed, he, he threw him down, but Jesus' power was so perfect that he prevented this man from being hurt in any way. What does it say there? There in 35, and when the devil had thrown him in the midst, thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. When Jesus spoke, the demon left, proving again his power. You know, Jesus said as he left this world, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. There's power in his words. 
There's power in the word of God that you hold in your hands. There's power in the commands. There's power in the promises. You know, I'm reminded of Jesus on the boat there with the disciples in Mark chapter 4. As he was there on the boat, what happened? A storm came. Jesus was sleeping. They started to worry. They thought their lives were going to be over. And they questioned, why are you, why are you able to sleep? Don't you know our lives are about to end? And, and he stood up and rebuked the wind and said, peace be still. And what happened? It ceased. The disciples thought everything was over at that moment. Jesus spoke and things were different. You know, whatever sin may be in your life, Jesus is greater. His power is enough. His power is enough, first of all, in salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians 2. If you are saved, this is describing you right now. It says there in verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses of sin, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's describing those lost in sin. It says dead in sins. Then verse 4, what does it say? But God, who was rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when we were dead in our sins, he did what no other could do for us. And I want to tell you this morning, to the most wicked sinner to ever walk this earth, Jesus is enough. I, I was rejoicing last night, it came to my mind of the two thieves on the cross on either side of Jesus. Both of them deserved what they got, didn't they? Both of them there were hung, they were tortured as they were. One mocked Jesus, he said, if you're God, save us. And the other one, facing his death and recognizing he deserved his punishment, also understood Jesus didn't. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, he said to Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. It's most likely this man had not been around Jesus to this point. I'm sure he'd heard of him. But obviously this man's life was no different. He was was being punished for, for the crimes that he committed. He recognized that. And he said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. That man's in heaven today. He didn't complete discipleship. He didn't didn't give any worship to God. He simply asked and received. Because Jesus is enough. The Bible says, I shared it with you last Sunday night in Hebrews, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. Beyond what any possibilities could ever be, we are completely, thoroughly saved. Because of him. His power is enough in salvation. His power is also enough in temptation. You know, Jesus said in Luke 22, pray that ye enter not into temptation. 
In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus prayed, he said, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's an implication there that we don't have to be fall into temptation. We can also pray for God to protect us from it at times. I mentioned a minute ago on Wednesday night, we, we are in a spiritual battle and we look at the spiritual armor we are to have in Ephesians chapter 6 and he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the what? Power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So no matter what attacks may come, no matter how bad the world may get, no matter how intense the, the temptations may be, no matter how big or hard or strong the stronghold may be in your life, Jesus has made it possible for us to not only avoid those temptations, but to give us what we need to conquer them. His power is enough. God has provided everything we need for victory in the, in the temptations. His power is not only enough in salvation, in our, in our temptations, but thirdly, in our trials. I was thinking of people throughout the Bible that face different heartaches. And one that comes to mind often is the Apostle Paul. This is a man that met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He gave God everything he had. He was a Pharisee. He gave all those things up to serve God, to help churches, to reach people. And he had this thorn in the flesh. This infirmity that was there that, that just hurt him day to day. And he, and he felt if that was not there, he could serve God even more than he was. And, he, and three different times, he asked God to remove it from him. And, in, and, and, Jesus, and God's answer to him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, My grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then he said this. He goes, God's grace is enough. His strength is enough. He said, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. There's strength for the Christian in the trial. No matter what you're going through right now, your struggles, loss, heartache, hardships, Jesus makes the difference. But the key is keeping our eyes on him. Remember Peter, when Peter walked on water, through Jesus and his power, through his faith in Jesus, was able to do just that. And if you're not, not, not remembering at the moment when that happened, there was a storm all around Peter. The waves were high, the wind was blowing, these men were really scared for their life. And as they saw Jesus approach, they were frightened there in the storm because of all the surroundings and things that were going on. But when Jesus called Peter out to come to him, Peter stepped on that water and began to, to, to do something no other man beside Jesus had done. But after a while, he sank. And it wasn't because Jesus let him down. He sank into the Sea of Galilee when he saw the blowing winds, the rain, the waves. His mistake really wasn't even looking at the storm. It was taking his eyes off Jesus. And our problem as Christians often is, is that we focus on our problems or our difficulties, our distractions, instead of putting our eyes on Jesus. His power is enough. 
His grace is sufficient. In the book of Lamentations, we're reminded that our God is faithful. His compassions fail not. His mercies are new every morning. And we can trust him and his power in the difficulties. His power is enough. His power, secondly, brings transformation. This man that we encounter here in verse 34 was one way. And by the end of the story was something completely different. My first message ever preached here in October was about the maniac of Gadara. And I remember reading about that man and looking there and he was naked, he was screaming, he was constantly hurting himself. He lived there by the tombs and everybody was scared to death to even walk by that place. But then Jesus came into the picture and moments later he was clothed and in his right mind, and all he wanted was to travel wherever Jesus went. You know, there may be people here that were once continually looking to the things of the world, but now you want what God wants. I saw a story this week about John Wesley. He was robbed as he was returning from a service one night. And this thief, as he robbed him, Wesley said, hey, I got one other thing for you. And he called this thief that just robbed him to come back. And he told him, he says, My friend, you may live to regret this sort of life. And if you ever do, here's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That thief looked at him and he ran away. But Wesley prayed those words would bear fruit in this man's life. And years later, Wesley was greeting people after a Sunday service when this stranger came up to him. And it, was, and it surprised Wesley to learn this visitor, now a Christian and successful businessman, was the same man that robbed him years before. And the man looked at Wesley and he said, I owe it all to you. And Wesley looked at him and said, no, you don't. You owe it to the precious blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin. Jesus changes things. You know, Longfellow could take a worthless sheet of paper write a poem on it, and it'd be worth thousands. Rockefeller could sign his name to a piece of paper and make it worth a million dollars. That's capital. A mechanic can take a piece of metal that is worth $5 and, and make it worth 100 to him. That's skill. An artist can take a cheap canvas, paint a picture on it, make it worth hundreds, thousands, even millions of dollars. That's art. God can take a sinful life Wash it in the blood of Jesus. Put a spirit in it and make it a blessing to humanity. That's salvation. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. Jesus' power can bring transformation to any life. His power, bring, his power is enough. His power brings transformation. And lastly, his power is to be talked about. Look at verse 36. They saw everything that happened there in that synagogue. And they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went out into every place of the country round about. When people witnessed this, they couldn't help but tell other people about it. You know, tonight we're 
going to be looking in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, and we're just going to focus on the true worship, worshiping in spirit and in truth. But in John chapter 4, Jesus encounters this woman, at, woman of Samaria at the well, and he told her about the living water. And after she accepted him, she went about and she said, come see a man which told me all things ever I did. Is not this the Christ? The maniac of Gadara, after, he, after Jesus met with him, the Bible says he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. John chapter 12, it says, The people therefore that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. They told people about it. They, they, they saw, they understood, they witnessed what happened. I can recall in my life, almost 30 years ago as a six-year-old boy, being without Jesus and what happened when I put my faith and trust in him for salvation. He has made all the difference in my life. I want you this morning to think of the day that Jesus changed your life. Think of the moment that you put your faith and trust in him for salvation. Are you thankful? You know, these people witnessed the power and authority of Jesus. And they could not help but tell other people what they saw. You know, Jesus, at the end, end of, as he, before he left this world, told us in Matthew 28 that we are to be witnesses. A witness is somebody who, by explanation and demonstration, gives audible and visible evidence of what they have seen or heard. Witnessing is, is sharing what's been done for us and that it's been done for others as well. You say, it's hard. I'm not good at that. Makes me uncomfortable. I, I don't know if I, I do a good job or do it justice. I know the Bible tells me to do it, but I, I don't know if I really can. Someone said a good witness is, isn't like a salesman, where there's emphasis on the person rather than the product. A witness is just like a road sign. It, it doesn't matter whether it's old, young, pretty, or ugly. All it has to do is point in the right direction to be able to be understood. Because we are witnesses of Jesus all you're doing is pointing others to him. You know, Jesus met people where they were. We can look in the New Testament in the ministry of Jesus, and we see 132 contacts that are, that are recorded in the Gospels that Jesus had with people. And all those people that, whose lives were changed because of Jesus, six of them were in a temple, four were in a synagogue, and 122 of them we're out in the mainstream of life. That's where the majority of your witnessing is going to be. Are we doing that? Are we sharing as we should? Anybody ever heard of a man named Mr. Kimball from the 1800s? He was a Sunday school teacher. And in 1858, he led a young Boston shoe clerk to Christ named D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody became an evangelist and a pastor, and he went to England. And in 1879, his, the preaching that God used him to do helped a man named Frederick B. Meyer. He's a pastor of a small church. F.B. Meyer came from there to an American college and was able to lead a student to Christ named J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman eventually got engaged in the YMCA work and employed a former baseball player named Billy Sunday, to do evangelistic work. 
And the list goes on and on and on. Millions of people affected. And it started with a layman Sunday school teacher named Mr. Kimball. The power of Jesus is enough to overcome any obstacle, to change any life, to be proclaimed from the mouth of any Christian. Have you experienced it? If you haven't, choose him. And if you have, tell people about it. Every head bowed, every eye closed.